I am amazed often at the ability of Madison Avenue to catch the essence of our culture and of our society. Sometimes they direct it, and other times they just reflect the reality of um, what is taking place and what is going on. There is a series of commercials that is done by AT&T in which a man is speaking to children. And as I was saw one of these not too long ago and thought about it, I, I was really troubled by the content of it. Listen to the commercial. Who thinks more is better than less? Okay, why? More is better than less because if stuff is not less, if there's more less stuff, then you might you might want to have some more, and your parents just don't let you because there's only a little bit. Right. We want more. We want more. Like you really like it. You right. want more. I follow you. It's not complicated. More is better. We want more. We want more. We want more. If there is a theme of our culture, if there is a theme of our time, those words are probably, excuse me while I get my glasses out of here, those words are probably an excellent summary of what our culture says. I want more. I want more. I want more. In fact, it's almost considered unpatriotic to not want more. There is the attitude of what's wrong with you. You don't want something bigger. You don't want something better. And whether I am living in want and I'm living in humble means, the world says you want more. And if I'm living in abundance, the world says, you want more. I heard the story of a company that had relocated to an area in which the tribal people were coming and beginning to work for this company. And there was a problem. The employees would come and they would be trained and they'd work for maybe several months or they'd work for a year or so, and then all of a sudden they would disappear and they wouldn't be seen again. Finally, those that were leading this particular investment realized that the problem was that these workers had hit a level of contentment more than they ever thought they would do. And so they had enough. They were content. And when they had met that level, they simply left. The leaders of that endeavor came up with an interesting solution. In the break room and in the lunch room, they started putting catalogs. And so suddenly, these employees could begin to look through the catalogs 
And the attitude became, I want more. I want more. Do we always need to want more? We are in Philippians chapter 4, and we are looking at verses 10 through 13, and yes, we've been there for several weeks. But it's because in this particular passage, Paul, through the ways in which he writes, through the use of rhetorical um, tools, just packs a tremendous amount in these verses. And in there, he's going to say to us that he has learned the secret, and you find it there in verse 11 where he says, I've learned, and then he says this, to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is like to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. little farther down, he says, In every situation, he has learned the secret of contentment, whether well-fed, whether satisfied, or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Do you know what's so interesting about that passage? Noki, tell us. What's so interesting about that passage is that Paul does not make a preference. He doesn't think, say, all things considered, I'd rather be wealthy. He doesn't say, all things considered, I'd rather be poor. What he understood was that in either one of those situations, whatever God had determined for his life was wonderful because it provided the opportunity to be more and more dependent and more and more understanding of his relationship with Christ. Now, we tend to understand being in want doing that. But Paul says, even in plenty, I've learned to be content. I've learned that in all of it, it's Christ who enables me. That's some unusual thinking for our culture. We don't understand that. We don't get that. And what I'd like to do this morning is just take a few moments. And some of you say, yeah, right, Keith, you never take a few moments. But to look at what does it mean to be content in want and to be content in plenty? And can we admit, in our culture, it's the second one that we struggle with the most. How can you be more and more dependent on Christ when we have more than the world can imagine? I remember being in a little town in Russia called Kaluga. And the pastor that we were working with is we were interacting there, had come to the United States on several occasions. And what he could not get over was going to the grocery stores. Now, down in Louisiana, we had a grocery store called Schweigman's. It's sort of like the Wagman's up here. It was, did I say that right? Don't giggle. 
It was acres of choices. And he couldn't get over it. The cereal aisle. Actually, the fact that there was a cereal aisle just astounded him. And whether or not we're willing to admit it, we always want to compare ourselves with the, the Gates and the, you know, others who are incredibly wealthy, the Koch brothers. To the rest of the world, you have plenty beyond your imagination. I discovered that I live in the top 5% of the world's income. And I am not wealthy by American standards. There is no one here that doesn't live in the top 20% of the world wealth. So we need to look at that and ask the question, Paul, what do you want from us? How do I learn to be richer in my relationship with Christ, whether I'm in plenty or whether I'm in want. Now last year, I mean last week we looked at this little chart and we talked about the different needs that we have and, you know, just a, a few minutes of review. We talked about casual needs, which are matters of our comfort and enjoyment. You know, I, I need a new dress, I need new shoes, I need a new car, I need a new boat, I need a new fishing gear, I need a new tackle box. You know, those things just make us happy. Not really happy, but they give us a sense of enjoyment. We talked about critical needs, where if these needs are not met, something dies. The critical needs of of a relationship. I I, I want a, a spouse that understands me, and without that, there's a death in that relationship, not physically, but there's a, there's a loss that can be profound. We said when you look at these, we come to understand that the source of meeting those needs, according to Scripture, is God's providential provision through my efforts my, and my relationships with others. God says, I will meet those needs knowing what is best for you. And our response to that provision by God is faith. God, you know what you're doing. Submission, not my will, but your will be done. Faithfulness, God, whether or not this brings plenty or want, I will do what you have called me to do, and I will be faithful. And dependence, God, I need you. Which led to those core needs, those crucial needs, the needs that identify who I am, the the needs when they are met, I understand that I am whole as a person, that I am loved, that I am accepted, that I have purpose and meaning to my life. And we said those are found in my relationship with God. I loved what Robin said about idolatry this morning. The problem we struggle with is what do we place in the center? What is it that gives us that sense of identity, that sense of purpose, that sense of wholeness? Is it my wealth? Is it my power? Is it my car? Is it my boat? Any of those things (coughs) will ultimately 
and completely fail to provide a true and eternal identity. It is only in my intimacy and my relationship with Christ that I learn those things, that I have those things. Now, that's the foundation. And we, if you want to hear it again, listen to last week's message. And we looked at the word contentment as it comes from the Stoics and the idea of contentment there being um, sufficient, the idea being whole, the idea being complete. The, for the Stoics, it was within myself. I was self-sufficient. For Paul, his sufficiency is in Christ. I can do anything that God calls me to do through Christ who enables me. But as Paul is developing that, he says, I've learned this wholeness. I've learned this contentment. I've learned this sense of sufficiency, whether I am in plenty or whether I'm in want. And so as we come to this passage, we come to understand that contentment in every situation requires dependency on my completeness in Christ. And I need to do the mental work. I need to do the internal work that brings me to understand that. doesn't just happen. I need to take the truth of God's word and make it pragmatic in my life. And say, as I am walking through this situation, here is the truth of God's word that directly applies to it, and I'm going to hold on to my convictions, even if my feelings may tell me otherwise. So as we come here to Paul, as he begins to teach, and we look at verse 12, and he begins to tell us in those situations in which he has found contentment. And he says, I know whether I'm in need or whether I'm in plenty. I know whether I'm satisfied or I'm hungry. I know whether I'm in plenty or I'm in want. In all of those situations, I have learned that there is a completeness in my relationship with Christ. It provides the contentment, the wholeness that my soul longs for. And I was thinking through that. I, I wondered, how do I know when I'm not content? How do I judge my heart? And in those times of want, whether it be want financially, whether it be want materialistically, whether it be want relationally, how do, I, how do I know that? What are some of the warning signs? And, you know, Scripture has a lot to say. The Proverbs have a lot to say. Um, there is much to say about the ways in which we can tell if there's a struggle going on. You understand that all of us are wonderful at being able to deny the truth within us. And so what I want to do is I want to give a list of some things to look for in your life, some ways of thinking that may indicate that I'm struggling with contentment when I'm in want. Now, please understand, and we're going to see this in a moment, being poor or being rich is not more spiritual. The Pharisees believed that being wealthy showed that God was on your side. 
The monastic movement said, no, it was those who were poor God was on their side. Paul says is, either one, take a look at your heart. And not in judgment, but exposure. And this is the other thing about this, what I'm about to do. I don't want you looking at anybody else. Don't rib your spouse. Don't stare at your son. Don't do any of those things. Look here. Look here. And as we begin to look, we understand that our response in times of want will demonstrate any lack of contentment. Now, I don't, this is not a complete list. These are just some things I thought about over the last several weeks. As I, I thought about the times that I was in want and the struggles that would easily come up. Some of the indications, some of the ways that I know that as I'm beginning to respond, one of them is this. Am I resentful to those who have more? Do I have a resentment to them? As I'm out on the lake with my little skiff, and suddenly a 20-footer comes by, but 150 on the back, decked out with everything. Do I praise God for the plenty that that person has? Or do I go, that's not fair? What's your heart? The person you were in school with, they had worse grades than you. And they have a bigger house. The family that you know that the ways that they interact with their children whether it be directly or spiritually, it's just way off. And their kids are wonderful. They're all in ministry. They all marry perfect spouses. They have the biggest church in the city. And inside, Struggle with contentment. Struggle with knowing I am whole in Christ apart from that. Another question to ask. Am I willing to use manipulation or deceit to acquire from others? Tax time. Those wealthy people never pay their due in tax. I'll just lie a little bit on this form. Nobody will know. They'll never audit me. I don't make enough. You manipulate others in responding to them. Maybe this question. By the way, that one you do in relationship? Oh, you ought to know how my husband's doing. He's just... Oh, you ought to come by my house. I just spent the last six months making sure it was just right so you could come in and I could impress you with any of that. Am I dismissive or rejecting of those who are unable or unwilling to give what I request? Remember, we talked about first century friendship. And the whole idea of first century friendship was 
that it was based on virtue in one another, a quality in one another that drew you towards it, that they talked about the fact that there were friendships based on need. They do exist. And the problem with that is if the need is not meant or the need is fulfilled, the relationship comes to an end. Is that how I treat people? How about this one? Am I lacking in perseverance when an increase or change in uncertainty is uncertain or unattainable? Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. I'm not going to clean this house. This is all I have. Why should I bother cleaning this house? God is all God gave me. I'm not going to be faithful. This car, why should I take care of this car? Why should I clean it up? It's no Mercedes. It's a Pinto. Some of you are going, huh? My boss just told me I'm not getting the raise. Why should I be faithful? Why should I work harder? Paul said it this way. He says, do your work with enthusiasm. Now, this is out of the um, century version. Work as if you were serving the Lord. Be good stewards of what the, what the Lord has provided with, for you. Whether it's more or less. Whether it's fancy or plain. Work. Be good stewards as if you were serving the Lord. Not as if you were serving only men and women. Remember that the Lord will give a reward to everyone, slave or free, wealthy or poor, in need or in plenty, for being faithful and doing good work. Another question to ask. Am I uncertain about God's ability to provide for the future? Am I continually anxious about, will the job be there tomorrow? Will the funds be there tomorrow? Will the relationship be there tomorrow? Will the job be there tomorrow that I just left? Constantly, constantly thinking. And then finally, am I convinced that God or others owe me a better life? Any of those questions that are answered in a way that show a lack of contentment indicate that I'm not willing to fully trust in God's wisdom and God's provision and that I'm not willing to be faithful even if it doesn't accomplish the more that my heart is constantly crying. Now, what's the secret Paul learned? What's the, 
What's the understanding that Paul had? Why is it that in Acts chapter 16, where he comes to the Philippians at the very first time, when you are reading through that passage and you're reading through Paul's experience there in Acts, you discover that in the beginning of the chapter, he and Silas are living in Lydia's house in this incredibly wealthy mansion. Then a day or so later, they're in the lowest place within the jail. And Paul is singing praises to God. Where does that come from? Now, Paul doesn't elaborate that in these three verses. He doesn't elaborate there in verse 13 when he says, I can do everything through Christ, but can begin to understand Scripture and some of the principles that Scripture presents to us? What does it require of us? What's the, the belief? What's the commitment? What's the certainty that we need to hold on to in the midst of those times? Now, here's a few. Again, I'm not saying this is complete. This is just some of the things as I was thinking through these passages and Passages in Scripture. How about this one? Will I acknowledge that my humble means do not reflect or affect God's love for me? Whether I drive a Mercedes or whether I drive, uh, here's another one, a Yugo. That'll date you. Yugo was this Yugoslavian car that it was horrible, but they were cheap. Well, I acknowledge that is not a reflection of God's love for me. That if I am living in want, it is because God understands that his purposes in my life are best accomplished. And the, the will for my life and the growth of my character and whatever it is, is best accomplished by living at this level. Paul said it this way. If God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The wealth of the universe is God's and eternity is awaiting for us. All things will be ours. But in the process, God is working. So Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness? Can you say you're in want if you're naked? Or danger or sword? No, all these things. We are more than conquerors. Through him who, what? Loved us. Do you want to know if God loves you? Look at this. Look at the not the circumstances. God will reveal the purpose for the circumstances. But he has already clearly declared his love and his wisdom and his power. Another way to respond is, will I acknowledge my humble means do not affect my personal value or God's purpose for my life? 
You are in the neighborhood you are in because God understands you have an opportunity to have incredible impact with those neighbors, with the people that surround you. You are in the job that you are in because God seeks to use you in that job to accomplish what you will not see until eternity. God does not require the wealthy to accomplish his purposes. You know, one of the classic examples of that in a, of a generation ago was Mother Teresa. Who had incredible impact on people's lives. And the world would say, there's nothing. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by the human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And yes, even the things that are not. Remember this guy named Abraham? He was in his 90s, and so was his wife, and God came and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. Imagine what his neighbors said to that. The thing that wasn't even in existence and what the world considered impossible. God eventually, through some convoluted ways that Abraham tried to force upon God, and then finally through God's way, Isaac was born. Why does he do all this? So that his power can be demonstrated. We don't boast. It's not by power. It's not by wealth. It's by God that he accomplishes his purposes. Another thing. Another acknowledgement, act of faith. Will I acknowledge God as my provider? Not people, circumstances, nor my efforts. God works through these things. There's an amazing verse that's found in First Chronicles. If you ever do the crown ministries, the financial things, they will require you to memorize this verse at the beginning of the, of the course. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven... And in the earth is yours. Who does your stuff belong to? You just get to lease it for a while. You just get to use it for a while. And you will give an accounting to the one who owns it on how you used it. Now listen to this. For all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Both riches and honor come from your hard work, your effort, your inheritance, your winning the lottery, whatever. No. God chooses the level that which he believes is best for you to live. It comes from God. Now, I know, I, I know what I'm thinking. Well, then why bother working? 
Not to get, but to be faithful. To be committed. To be a good steward. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hands are the power and might. And in your hands it is to make great and to give strength. Or the opposite. To make humble and to make wonderful. And then finally, these two things. Will I acknowledge what is required of me? Is faithful perseverance which God may use to change my circumstances. But whether he does or doesn't, I will be faithful. And then finally, will I acknowledge God's provisions are best for me? And what he has provided, the level of what he has provided, the amount that he has chosen to provide for me, is truly what is best. And it is all that I require through my intimacy with him and what he provides to accomplish his purposes and to live a godly life. God's word says it this way. Romans 5, 3 through 4. We rejoice in our suffering, in our want, in our, in our times of emptiness, in our times of, of need. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character produces hope. Timothy, and Timothy, I'm sorry, in James chapter 1, we'll look at Timothy in a moment. He says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, pressing in situations, those difficult situations. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of these acknowledgments, the testing of these truths as you apply them in your life, develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything that you need for those crucial needs. Paul says, that's how I've learned to be content. He wrote it throughout his epistles. But what about the other side? What about Learning to be content in times of abundance. Beloved, that's us. That's, you know, somebody took a cell phone and said, you realize what's in a smartphone? And on like two tables, they laid out all the things that are on my smartphone from 20 years ago. In my smartphone is an alarm clock. In my smartphone is a calendar. In my smartphone is my appointment book. In my smartphone are my contacts. You know, the old Rolodex. I have a Rolodex on my, my, my desk. And I said to Cindy, why do I keep this? In my smartphone is my library. 1,200 books. Beyond belief. I used to have this GPS thing. It's now in my phone. We have more, so much. 
How do I learn to be content? First, how do I know when I'm not content? How about this? When I respond to abundance, take a look at some of the things that I think we all struggle with. I do. There's this new computer that they're showing on some of the TV commercials. I need it. It will make my life complete. I will be whole and sufficient if I just get it. Actually, it's a motorcycle. No, it's a boat. No, I don't know. How about this? Am I continually desiring more, newer, better, bigger, faster? Am I never satisfied? Yes, so. Am I ever satisfied? Is it ever enough? That's an indication of whether I'm content. How about this? Am I condescending to those with less? Do I fail to see the value of who they are being made in the image of God and being used for God's purposes? whether they have more education than me or less education, whether they have more money than me or less money than me, whether they have a more prestigious job than me or less prestigious. How do I judge people in terms of their value? Is it based on the fact that they are made in the image of God and God is working through them, especially believers? Or do I use the world standard? Am I failing to continually thank God for his provisions? When was the last time you thanked God for your cell phone? When was the last time you thanked God? I'm sitting night today. We're thanking God for our garage. When the frost was really thick. When did you thank God for amazing wealth that we have in each other. Am I failing to continually thank God for his provision? Or am I saying, God, I want this, I want that, I need this, I need that. Why don't you give me this? You owe me this. Am I continually anxious about maintaining my wealth and possessions? I tell this story, I've told it here, I think, that when Cindy and I were living in Louisiana, and um, I had just left the counseling practice that I was in and gone to the church. And my salary dropped just out of the bottom. And we couldn't a whole, afford a whole lot for transportation. And we had this old, beat-up Ford 150 van. We called it Boyer's Bodacious Blue Bomber. And it was so decked out. The people that had it before us had put these flared things on the on the wheel wells and had a drop-down deck inside and had taken out the inside and carpeted with shag the whole inside of the van and it had a little refrigerator and it had an 8-track and a CB radio. It had 6,000 miles on when we bought it. It was already 10 years old. Long story, I won't get into it. We went to this meeting and we were going to this meeting at a prestigious posh hotel downtown and we were going to be there and we were going to see um 
one of the Neville brothers was singing there, and, and there's a silent auction going on. And we were there because it was part of the counseling center, and, and being part of that, I had, it to be, I had to be there. And we tried to park our van inside the parking deck, but the big CB antenna at the back wouldn't let us get in there. So we had to park it on this, this parking lot outside. When we came out after the meeting, it was evident someone had broken into our van. Do you know what? We didn't care. There was nothing in there. Please take the 8-track. Please. Can you rip out the... Sh- the only thing they took was I had a tire iron. I guess they needed it for their profession. And they took the, they took the tire iron. But there was such a sense of relief to say, you know what? I don't have to worry. Break in. Am I continually anxious? Continually overwhelmed? And this one. Am I willing to sacrifice faithfulness? Using my wealth and power to take advantage of there was a businessman down in Louisiana, and literally his reputation was this. He never left his Christianity get in the way of a good deal. Think about that. So in our plenty, what do we need to be convinced of? What's our convictions? What do we need to acknowledge as we struggle? All of us struggle with these things. Well, just very quickly. Our faith needs to rest on these truths. We'll not acknowledge wealth possesses a spiritual danger. Abundance may diminish my awareness of my dependence on God. God's word never condemns wealth, but it warns. It's dangerous for your soul if you are not careful. God gives wealth. In fact, in in 1 Timothy 6, he says, God gives us wealth in order that we might enjoy it. But will you understand, it's dangerous. We are in danger in the wealth of this country because we fail to understand how dependent we are on God. As he was warning the Israelites as they were going into the land, he said it this way. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. You forget where it comes from. You forget the provision. You forget the dependence we have on God continually. Forget the Lord your God. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And there's all kinds of struggles on what that means. Than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Not that it can't be done, but there's a struggle. Why? So easy to forget my dependence on God. Well, I acknowledge that simplicity is a freer way of life. God's word calls us to simplicity. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. We don't believe that. Better a meal of vegetables 
where there is love and a fatted calf with hatred. Are we willing to be and say, God, a humble life is a free life or freer? 1 Timothy 6, Paul said it this way, but godliness with contentment is enough. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing and a bigger boat and a big motorcycle and a bigger house and a bigger, then we will be content. No! Still not satisfied. Another acknowledgement. Will I acknowledge God will ask an accounting of how my abundance was gained and used. There was this wealthy man who had a bumper crop and didn't have enough barns in which to store his stuff. And so he said to himself, actually literally it says, he said to his soul, soul, I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that night, he had to give an accounting. And God says, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have? give an accounting. And what we use here for eternity lasts forever. It's an investment. Will I acknowledge all my possessions belong to God and he can do with them as he wills? I remember a friend of mine being in an auto accident. Completely wasn't his fault. Car ran in from the side. You his responsibility. God, if that's what you want to do with your car, okay. There's an amazing book called The Severe Mercy. And in it, Ben Aachen and his wife, who's the author, they buy a brand new car, and the first thing they do is they go out and they take a hammer. And they whack the side of the car to remind them, this is just a thief. I don't know if you've noticed on my car, if you look really carefully on the front, you will fe- you will notice yellow paint that's up- over the front, and then there's sort of sprinkles out the back. My grandson was painting with yellow paint, and I have no idea what happened. And it was sp- it is water-soluble, and- but I can't get it off. And, and Brennan came to me and said, Dad, I- I'm so sorry. And-, and my response then was, no, no, you misunderstand. For a grandfather, that's a badge of honor. I need to acknowledge, God, this is yours. If my son, my grandson spills, I think it's my grandson. Brennan, did you do it? Um, If my grandson spills paint on the hood, God, if this is how you choose to use your stuff, loving him is more important than that thing. And then finally, will I acknowledge generosity is a necessity? Will you notice that word? Necessity. 
for those with abundance. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, to believe it's theirs and it makes them better, nor to put their hope in wealth. This is going to secure me, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides, notice where it comes, us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Beloved, every one of us here is abundant and to learn to be generous. I close with the Keith Boyer version of verses 11 and 13. This is a translation. Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I am able to live in a way that is always pleasing to God in every situation through the sufficiency found in my relationship with Christ and what he provides. Begins with that relationship and grows through faith and understanding. Father, thank you for these verses that are so packed with truth and conviction, encouragement, Father, as we've mentioned, it begins with a relationship with you. And as we do each Sunday morning, we invite anyone that's not certain of that relationship, is seeking or questioning or uncertain that they would come and speak to somebody about how they might know your son and have that relationship with you. Father, thank you that through that relationship, we can know that we are whole and complete. Father, help us to live it out whether we want or whether we are satisfied. To your glory. Amen.